Welcome to the Giants Auto Podcast, brought to you by Citizens, the official bank of the New York Giants. The Giants return to MetLife Stadium this weekend to play the Patriots. After going 1-2 and two on a three-game road trip, they are coming off a 31-19 win over the Commanders, and we're now joined by a man that called the game with Jonathan Vilma for the NFL on Fox. They'll have the call once again this week against New England. Versatile play-by-play announcer who also has a new book out entitled A Mike for All Seasons, my three decades announcing the NFL, NHL, NBA, MLB, and Olympics. Selfishly, I would say the most important part of his resume is that he's a fellow NYU Violet, none other than Kenny Albert. Kenny, you got Lance Meadow here on Giants.com. Always good to speak with you. Hope all is well. How's everything on your end? Lance, great to be with you. A lot of fun calling the Giants uh, Commanders game on Sunday. And, uh, we weren't there at the same time. I'm a lot older than you, but uh, we are both graduates of WNYU Radio, so proud to be a member of that club with you. Absolutely. An honor and a privilege, and I want to get into your history as we delve into the book, but let's start with the Giants connection first. Kenny, I know you appreciate statistical trends. It's quite interesting. You called a game in which the Giants quarterback was sacked nine times, and a Giants quarterback never won a game under those circumstances, and the opposing team has six opportunistic takeaways to basically balance the scale. What did you make of just the whole ebbs and flows of last week's game between the Giants and the Commanders? It was one of the craziest games that I've ever called, Lance, um, with DeVito getting sacked five times in the first quarter and then nine times throughout the game and, and the Giants coming up with the six takeaways. I actually posed the question to our statistician, Dave Corris, uh, when it was up to seven or eight sacks, but the Giants had the lead. I said, can you look up and ask the uh, statistical folks that we work with, uh, what is the record, uh, you know, for most time sacked in a, in a Giants win? And it turns out previously it was eight in a game against Philadelphia. So we were able to get that note uh, during the broadcast up on a graphic, mentioned it uh, in the fourth quarter. But, um, you know, the Giants defense, they, they were tremendous uh, right from the start. And Tommy DeVito, what a story. Uh, you know, we talked to him leading up to the game, and there's been so much written about him. And a uh, great story, uh, still living at home, obviously, and uh, that's gotten a lot of play. But, you know, aside from the sacks, he was terrific. Threw for almost 250 yards, three touchdowns, set a Giants record for most touchdown passes over the first two starts. So it was a fun game to call and look forward to this Sunday against the Pats. You brought up Tommy DeVito's personality, and you bring this up in your book, how your interactions with Daniel Jones reminded you so much of Eli Manning. I'm curious, from being around Tommy DeVito, anybody else come to mind in terms of his flavor and flash and what perhaps could lie ahead for him in how he's embraced this opportunity going from an undrafted guy to now all of a sudden a household name in Jersey and even beyond? Well, my first thought after the game, uh, and I'll get back to his personality in a second, but we've seen this, you know, with other players through the years in various sports where uh, they might get an unexpected opportunity um, and it leads to a long career. I mean, if, if Daniel Jones and Tyrod Taylor don't get hurt, Tommy DeVito's on the practice squad. He's the third quarterback. Uh, you know, who knows how long the career lasts. And again, it's only two starts, but you know, by doing what he did the other day, uh, this, you know, could turn into 10 years in the NFL, right? Uh, you know, maybe as a backup quarterback, not necessarily a starter, but sure. you, you think back to, you know, a Colt McCoy or a Chase Daniel, 
you know, quarterbacks who, you know, maybe didn't get the opportunity to start that many games early in their career, but uh, they're good team guys, excellent in the locker room, uh, in the quarterback room, and a guy like Tommy with his personality, and now that he's shown what he can do, uh, you know, in a game against uh, a division rival, you know, who knows what what happens down the line and how long he lasts in the league. So that was my first take. I'm not comparing him to Kurt Warner yet. It's early. It's two starts. But you think about the opportunity that Kurt Warner got. Um, you, you know, if if Trent Green doesn't suffer the injury, maybe Kurt Warner never gets into an NFL game. So it's those stories that I think, you know, you and I both love watching as they develop. Uh, you know, the personality, uh, you know, I'm trying to think that's a good question of other guys. Um, you know, we're not in the locker room on game day or on the field during practice or games, but you can just see reading quotes from coaches and players uh, about his infectious personality and uh, how that's translated on the field as well. You're ready for a change. Payday comes early with citizens. So go to that retreat. New you moves to the country. Now you're raising goats and launching a lifestyle brand. Are you ready for all that life brings? So speaking of storylines, as you hit on, he now has to solve a Bill Belichickian defense this week. And we know rookie quarterbacks haven't fared very well against Bill Belichick. I'm sure you're just delving in to your Patriots prep. But interestingly, Kenny, you recently called the Commander's Patriots game. So I guess that was a warm-up act for these two opponents against the Giants. The challenge that Tommy DeVito is facing this week and how much of a bit of a mirror image do you think the Giants and the Patriots are given some of their offensive struggles this season. Right. There are a lot of similarities and we did have that Patriots commanders game a couple of weeks ago. And uh, you're right about Bill Belichick against rookie quarterbacks. So uh, you know that Bill will have a couple of tricks up his sleeve <laughs> and, and the Patriots, you know, they're coming off the bye. They were in Germany prior. We had them two games ago against the commanders Um Doing our prep leading up to that last Patriots game, uh, both speaking with Patriots and Commanders folks, uh, the general thought was that uh, the offense is struggling, but it's a really good defense. Now, he might not have the stars, the Hall of Famers uh, that he had in the past, but Jonathan Vilma, uh, my partner, great you know, defensive player, three-time Pro Bowl linebacker, he was really impressed with, with the Patriots defense uh, leading up to that game against Washington. So... You know, I'm really looking forward to it. So many storylines, Belichick against the Giants, uh, the rookie quarterback against the Pats. So, uh, you know, you have Jabril Peppers, a key part of that uh, Patriots defense coming back to the Meadowlands. Um, Tommy DeVito having won a state championship at MetLife in high school back in 2015. So, uh, you know, despite the records, somebody asked me earlier, how do you prepare for a game, you know, involving two teams with losing records? I, I prepare for every game the same. We had the Ravens-Browns, great game, 10 days ago, 33-31, uh, last-second field goal uh, by the Browns, who trailed by 14. They were 7-2 and two and 5-3 and three heading into that game. Then we have Giants-Commanders, Giants-Patriots, but I look at them all the same. They're all NFL games. There are some great storylines out there, so uh, couldn't be more excited. It's actually, uh, for our crew, a two-week stretch at MetLife. We have the Giants patch this week, and then the Jets and Falcons next week. So actually get to stay home for a couple of weeks. 
and quite the luxury for somebody like you who's traveling 24-7, which we're going to delve into based on your book. On a related note, Kenny, to preparation, I would think it's quite the luxury, given all of your national assignments, when you have the same team in consecutive weeks. And if I did my homework correctly, you had the Packers in back-to-back -back games this year, the Cardinals, the Giants is the third go-around, and you actually saw the Giants play the Dolphins. How does that perhaps help preparation-wise compared to all of a sudden having two teams that you had not been exposed to at all over the course of the season? Oh, absolutely. It's huge. It cuts down on at least, uh, I would say, five or six hours having seen the team previously, uh, maybe even more uh, because you're so familiar with the team. Uh, with the Giants, um, having done the last game, you know, I was there. So uh, it's one last game to watch back on on tape because we did the game um had arizona two straight weeks like you said green bay a couple of times now the patriots two out of three weeks so i will go back and watch their game against the colts uh over in germany um but it's a big help having a team two weeks in a row for sure the huddle is brought to you by citizens the official bank of the new york giants from game day to every day citizens is made ready for giants fans with insights guidance and solutions Learn more at citizensbank.com. As we're talking with versatile play-by-play -play announcer Kenny Albert setting the stage for the Giants and the Patriots, also discussing the ins and outs of his career. It's interesting. You bring up in your book, Kenny, that this is now year 30 of the NFL on Fox, and you are the last man standing, for the lack of a better phrase, in terms of the original crew. I found it fascinating that a Fox executive, if I have this right, gets access to a lacrosse game that you called, and that slowly opened the door for a tryout. How much is that truly an example of as much as talent and skill set is critical in this industry, sometimes timing and who you know plays just as integral of a role? That was a, 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 a at least, you know, a, a, I would say 50% as far as getting that first audition. I heard the story later on. Um, you know, there are a number of us who were brought out to Los Angeles Rupert Murdoch makes this crazy bid late in 93 to steal the NFC package away from CBS. They had had it for 35 plus years. And Fox decided to go with Pat Summerall and John Madden, the all-time greats, as their top crew. And then Dick Stockton and Matt Millen, uh, excellent broadcasters as the second crew. And they brought a lot of us out there to audition. And on the play-by-play -play side, they wound up hiring four really young broadcasters, um, Joe Buck, Kevin Harlan and Tom Brennan were the others. And uh, I was paired with Ron Pitts that first year back in 94. And this is year 30, amazingly. But I, I, I was told later on that uh, I was working in Washington, D.C. at the time, calling Capitals games and numerous college sports for HTS, home team sports, uh, back in the 90s. And I did call a couple of lacrosse games. And it turns out George Krieger, who was one of the Fox executives at the time, his son was a high school lacrosse player, and he had asked uh, Jody Shapiro, one of the executives at HTS, who he knew from the business, uh, his son wanted to watch some college games. And back then, there was no satellite TV, uh, you know, sure. no streaming, of course. So he was sent some tapes, and I was working one of those games. And that w was not the entire reason I was brought out for the audition, but uh, from what I'm told, it was definitely a big part of it. Well, I think it's a great nugget just in terms of how it has helped you establish yourself at Fox. And you brought up streaming. 
you had to get so creative, Kenny, early in your career. Not to say that you're an old man, but the internet didn't exist. I mean, now you think yeah. of opportunities, right? I mean, kids in high school can stream their games, can call games. You didn't have that luxury. I'm curious how you've seen the industry evolve and perhaps the luxuries that young broadcasters have today, not to say that they don't have to hustle, but what you had to go through compared to newer generations. Well, there are so many more opportunities out there now due to technology, streaming. Uh, prime example, when I was at NYU uh, back in the late 80s, I graduated in 90. We called the men's and women's basketball games, terrific division three program on WNYU radio, your alma mater as well. There we go. And <laughs> we had a fight for airtime with the music department because oh, they yeah. didn't want their shows preempted. So it was a little bit of a struggle. Uh, we wound up doing most of the games that we wanted to, but um, it was a battle. These days with the internet, a college student can go call a soccer game or a volleyball match and you don't need a radio station. You just put it out there on the internet. I was real fortunate though, Lance, in high school, um, I covered the uh, my high school sports for the town paper and the and the school newspaper. So I was at all the games in the various sports. When I was in 10th grade in January 84, a local cable station, Cox Cable of Great Neck, a neighboring town, I was going to high school in Port Washington. Uh, they showed up to film a girls basketball game. I, I have no idea how this happened, the relationship between Cox and the athletic director, but they were there. And they had a production van and two cameras. That was it. No announcers. So I volunteered. I was introduced to the producer, the late Roy Menton, and they clipped a microphone on my shirt. I sat in the third row. People around me probably thought I was talking to myself, uh, announced the game, chatted with Roy the next day on the phone, and he gave me the opportunity. They didn't have a play-by-play -play announcer. So for the next three years, two and a half years, I would bring friends along as color analysts and probably called 75 to 100 games all over Long Island. Not only high school, we did uh, football and basketball at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. So I was doing some college games as well, Division Three uh, football and basketball. And it was just the greatest experience. Um, back then, high school students really didn't have that opportunity. Now a lot of schools do offer uh, broadcasting programs and play-by-play -play of, of sporting events on streams, right, live streams. But back then, if you wanted to get into this, you really didn't have the opportunity until college. So the Cox Cable years were unbelievable as far as getting reps, the variety of sports, uh, football, basketball, hockey, baseball, soccer, lacrosse, you name it. Uh, then it was on to NYU where I called the, the Division Three basketball, as we talked about, men and women. And then uh, also fortunate during my college years to get hooked up with uh, a gentleman by the name of Joel Blumberg, the late Joel Blumberg, who was a radio producer, engineer in the New York area, a real hustler, involved in so many different sports. And I wound up filling in on, on Islanders pre and post game shows and filled in on four games my senior year in college. So, you know, for most people who want to get into it, you try and get the minor league job first, use those tapes to get the major league gig. In my case, I had an actual NHL tape from an Islanders Winnipeg game in December of 89 that I was able to send around. And that's how I wound up getting hired by the Baltimore Skipjacks of the American Hockey League and spent two years there. And uh, again, a tremendous opportunity, just getting the reps, 80 games a year, uh, several, uh, you know, by myself, some games with color analysts, some alone. So had to be my own engineer and also handled some PR sales, marketing for the team, go pick a player up at the airport, whatever they needed. So wouldn't trade those two years in for anything, despite the, 
six, eight, 10 hour bus rides that we would go on. Uh, Baltimore to Portland, Maine, 10 hours. That was the longest, but such great memories. Absolutely. You were bringing back horror stories about negotiating with the music people at WNYU, oh. Kenny, when I was sports director too. Actually, not to make this about me, but believe it or not, on my junior or senior year, I don't recall, they were reconstructing the space of the WNYU studio. They were going to take us off the air for months and I had to passionately fight to get us moved elsewhere or else, to your point, I would have lost valuable reps for right. months of a semester, which is the whole point of why you want to go to college because you get on-air opportunities. Absolutely. And one of the DJs at WNYU at the time was uh, Tabitha Soren, who went on to a long career at MTV. Um, she was actually one of the uh, you know, heads of the music department at WNYU back in the day. It's amazing what a small world it is. And you write about this in the book, all the different individuals that you cross paths with at summer camp who went into the sports writing and the broadcasting industry. And that brings me to, you brought up your writing background, Kenny. I'm very curious your perspective. Whenever anybody talks about broadcasters, they say, okay, well, it's the art of elocution. Gotta be good off your feet and speaking and public engagement. I would argue, I think writing is such a critical part of being a good broadcaster. And I'm wondering whether or not you think there's a lot of validity behind that. I do, I agree. I did so much writing um, in high school and college. I remember taking a copy editing class, for example, but I think that really uh, was important as far as uh, the play-by-play -play aspect, because you do have to edit your words when you're doing the opening. You might have 45 seconds for that opening on camera and, and you have to tighten it up and uh, writing is definitely, uh, you know, like you said, a, a big part of it for sure. Giants fans love a winner. It's why they love Citizens, named a 2022 Best Bank in the U.S. by the banker. As the official bank of the Giants and sponsor of the huddle, Citizens is made ready for fans of Big Blue. Learn more at citizensbank.com. As we are talking with versatile play-by-play -play announcer Kenny Albert, I'm holding up the book for those of you that are watching. A mic for all seasons. We're going through the ins and outs of his experience as a broadcaster. I want to get back to the NFL on Fox because you've worked with so many different broadcasters and even bringing in your hockey experience the late, great Tony Siragusa had a unique spot down on the field. And when you've done your hockey broadcast, Kenny, you've worked with analysts and announcers that have been in between the benches. What's the difference when you have to balance working with an analyst or a reporter down on the field who's so engaged as opposed to having somebody right next to you where it's much easier for cues and communication? And in many instances, I have somebody up with me and a third you know, down yeah. on the field, down on the ice. Um, when I worked with Moose Johnston and Tony Saragusa, we were together for eight years. Um, uh, we were known as Kenny, Moose, and Goose. And when I think back, uh, they were among the best years that I've ever had professionally. Um, uh, we called big games, uh, so many giant games during the 2007 and 2011 runs. Uh, we called five divisional playoff games. We called a Pro Bowl together. Uh, we had the Victor Cruz 99 yard touchdown, uh, back in 2011, we had the game, you know, when Eli against the Vikings had the three, uh, pick sixes, uh, in November. And then he goes on and wins the Super Bowl two months later. And I'll never forget Moose and Goose were such big proponents of Eli Manning. Even when he was going through that tough time, they, uh, looked into the future and, and thought he would have a great career. Um, as it turned out, of course, uh, they were correct. Um, 
but with 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 Tony on the field, he hated being referred to as a sideline reporter. He said, I'm a sideline analyst. He was analyzing the game. Uh, he had a, a, an incredible setup, which you might remember. Uh, looked like he was working for NASA. Uh, he was in the end zone and he had like eight monitors. He would have replays and, uh, you know, graphics and statistics. And um, he would usually, you know, stay down in one of the end zones. But, um, you know, there was that, nonverbal communication that we had to have between the three of us because Tony wasn't in the booth. He couldn't, you know, see us or tap us if he wanted to speak. And Daryl just had a great feel. You know, I would set up the play, call the play, wrap it up and kind of get out of the way. Moose would come in. And then he had a great feel for when Tony might want to speak. It was probably once every four or five plays, but I was always amazed they never talked over one another. Uh maybe, maybe once or twice a game, but but it didn't happen you would expect it to happen a lot more often than it did. Um, the only time Goose ever came to the booth, actually, was the Buffalo game, the Ahmad Bradshaw 88-yard run. Uh, yep. We had the game of the house storm in Buffalo late in the season, and uh, it was even too tough for Toner to stay down there in those conditions. So that was actually the only game he came up to the booth in the second half. But, you know, you mentioned hockey, and for many years I worked with Pierre McGuire, who was downstairs. Some games alone with Pierre, others with an analyst in the booth. Uh, the last two years with Eddie Olchek upstairs, Keith Jones downstairs uh, for two seasons. He's now the president of the Flyers. So now we have Brian Boucher and hockey's so fast paced, fast moving, a lot different than football where it's one play and then 20 or 25 seconds for the analyst or analyst to come in. Then another play, 20 or 25 seconds. Hockey, it's pretty continuous action. So again, I'm always amazed that uh, whether it was Eddie and Jonesy or Eddie and Boost that uh, they really didn't talk over each other. You just get used to a person's cadence and rhythm uh, once you've worked with them for a long time. Speaking of hockey, you bring this up in your book, a great opportunity in 2002 to be able to call the Olympics as Doc Emmerich. Unfortunately, he has his dog diagnosed with cancer, had to step aside, and you get that call relatively quickly turnaround-wise to when you had to go out and report and call games on the Olympics. I'm curious, Kenny, a two-parter for you. Number one, was that the quickest turnaround that you've ever experienced in terms of getting a last-second assignment? And how did that impact your prep work compared to something else when you know you can map out what you have up ahead for weeks and months? Right. That was a bit of a scramble, but so exciting to get the call. Unfortunately, Doc had to pull out at the last minute. So it was about a week before I had to travel to Salt Lake. And I remember watching the Rams Patriots Super Bowl, uh, the Adam Vinatieri game winner, uh, in my home office in New Jersey, and and preparing for about twenty four different hockey teams, uh, men's and women's at the Olympics, and uh, it was so much fun though uh, to be involved in the Olympics for the first time, and you know you never know you get a phone call and all of a sudden looking back I've worked eight Olympics, if not for the doc situation may not have ever worked any so right place at the right time. Um, similar back in 94, when um, I got the call to work NHL radio for the Rangers Canucks in the Stanley cup final uh, about a week before the start of the series, a week to 10 days, because Howie Rose, the great Howie Rose had done the NHL radio the previous season when the Kings played the Canadians. But as the Rangers kept winning and moving along in the playoffs in 94, it was apparent that if they won, he would have his Rangers and WFAN radio duties. So I got called out of the bullpen for that one. 
a little different. It was only two teams, not 24, but uh, just as exciting to get that opportunity. You love turf. You're good at it. So you start a turf biz. Business grows. Your savings grow. Become the most celebrated name in turf. Are you ready for all that life brings? On the topic of the Olympics, the, the one that I found a bit comical, for the lack of a better phrase, is when you were younger and you were doing behind-the-scenes work at the 1988 and 1992 Summer Olympics, that you had to maneuver your NYU course schedule in 88 because it overlapped with the start of the fall semester. And here's an example, Kenny, where knowing the president and the chancellor of the university and the journalism professors perhaps provided a bit of an aid, but how much did you have to think twice about whether or not that would interrupt your educational studies and whether or not it was worth that sacrifice? Or was that not even a debate at that point? Uh, I, I didn't think twice because it was such a great, you know, life experience, learning experience, work experience to uh, go to Barcelona for the Olympics in 88. I missed the first, I think, two weeks of class, maybe two and a half, but I worked it out. You mentioned the the <laughs> chancellor at the time, Jay Oliva, the late Jay, the late great Jay Oliva, who those of us who worked for WNYU, uh, the five or six of us in the sports department, we became pretty good friends with the chancellor because he was uh, such a proponent of the athletic department and he would be at all the home basketball games and he would travel to a lot of the away games with the team. So we got to know Chancellor Oliva very well. Um, he became a good friend. And I was honored to speak at uh, an event at NYU uh, when he retired at the Skirball Center, probably about 15 years ago now. Um, but I, I remember going up to his office one day and, and I said, how do you think I can make this work? Uh, missing the first two or three weeks of, of class my junior year. And he's, he agreed that it was a great life learning experience to go over there and work as a runner researcher for NBC in Barcelona. So you had to take, normally it took 16 credits back then, 16 per semester. There are four credits each class, so four classes, four credits. Um, you had to take at least 12 to live in the dorm. So I wanted to stay in the dorm. And the way that we worked it out, we hatched a plan that I would take 12 credits that semester. I'd make up the other four later on, which is pretty easy. Um, and I took only two classes that semester. And then I worked out, I did an independent study with the journalism department, which is basically writing a couple of papers on the experience at the Olympics for four credits. And then the two professors, Mitchell Stevens in the journalism department and uh, Jack Peckett was a, a history professor, but he also... I think he might have been the wrestling coach, so I knew him through the through the athletic department as well. We worked it out where I would take their classes, the two classes. I would take work with me to Barcelona for the first two weeks that I was missing. And then when I came back, caught up on some of the work and also uh, did a presentation in each class on the experience at the Olympics. So uh, we made it work. Chancellor Oliva was, was a, a great man, went on to become the president, but he definitely helped me hatch that plan uh, to miss the first two or three weeks of college my junior year and go over to Barcelona to work for NBC. One of the most unique independent study courses in the history of the college curriculum, I would say, Absolutely. not just at NYU, but even beyond. And Mitchell Stevens, a name I'm very familiar with because I later took a course with him too. So just goes oh. to show you 
It's a small world in violet land. And speaking of a small world, I want to you know, bring your career full circle because people who are very familiar with your work are also very familiar with the Albert name. And it's not just your father, Marv, but your two uncles have had very decorated broadcasting careers as well. Steve and Al, coincidentally, Kenny, you know, they all went to my high school, Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn, New York. So it's amazing the connections I have with the Albert family from an educational standpoint. But I know that you talk about this in your book. Household meals, it sounded like a sports talk show. But from a stylistic standpoint, Kenny, what stood out about the three? And how did you pick and choose, hey, Marv does it this way, Steve does it that way, Al does it that way, and how to sort of navigate what you found beneficial from really all three of them? Right, it's a great question. And and when Al and Steve would come over uh, when I was younger, uh, and I would sit there and listen to their stories, the three of them. It really did seem like the first all-sports radio station. They would talk about the, the various teams and leagues and networks that they worked for. I, I've never gotten that question before. I, I don't know that I necessarily took, you know, something different from each of them. Uh, the number one thing that I did learn, though, from all three was the preparation. Um, that, that was something ingrained in my head from a young age, and I have a checklist that I go through before each and every game, which involves a lot of reading and watching previous games and preparing charts and going through notes and statistics and talking to players and coaches, going to practices, listening to press conferences. But I was a big radio listener, Lance, when I was younger. We didn't have cable TV until I was 17. So not only family members, but I would watch and listen. Uh, Rangers, Islanders, Devils, once they came in 82, Knicks, Nets, Giants, Jets, uh, Mets, Yankees. I, I would listen to every game you know, that I can get a hold of on the radio. I would watch the over-the-air broadcasts as well. And whether it was, uh, you know, Marty Glickman towards the end of his career, Spencer Ross, uh, you know, Bill White, Frank Messer, and Phil Rizzuto on the Yankees, Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Connor on the Mets. And then as it moved along, Howie Rose, Sam Rosen, uh, Jiggs McDonald, Mike Emmerich, uh, Jim Gordon back in the day with the Giants and Rangers. So I, I would listen and watch to every announcer, uh, probably took a little bit from each of them and, um, you know, still to this day, really enjoy watching so many of the great broadcasters that are out there. But, um, you know, at a young age, I had a tape recorder uh, as a present for my fifth birthday and started announcing games, you know, in my bedroom off the television. And it kind of came full circle during the COVID years. We were all announcing games off monitors, um, sure. you know, about, about uh, you know, 45 years after I was doing that in my bedroom on Long Island. Well, speaking of COVID, Kenny, does this book actually come to fruition that I'm holding up right now if it wasn't for the pandemic? Because with your schedule, I mean, it's amazing. You have time to prepare for everything that you're doing from a broadcasting standpoint, but you need time to take down and sit down and really reflect on your entire career. So how does the dynamics change, you think, with respect to this book? Maybe not. It might not have come to fruition if not for... Uh, that period when I was home for 146 straight days from March of 2020 until I left for the NHL bubble, the playoff bubble in Edmonton in early August. Yep. I had always thought about it in the back of my mind, putting pen to paper. I felt like I had a lot of stories. Uh, my family kind of, my wife and daughters, uh, you know, pushed me to do a book at some point, but never really felt like I had the time. And during the pandemic, um, I had received uh, an email several years prior from a book agent, Andrew Blauner in New York, Blauner Books. Uh, we didn't know each other, but had some mutual contacts. And he he emailed and said, if you're ever thinking about writing a book, let me know. I might be able to hook you up with a publisher. And sure enough, 
got in contact with Andrew and Triumph Books out of Chicago signed on. And it was a lot of fun over about a two and a half year stretch started during the pandemic, uh, came up with an outline, started writing some sample stories, paragraphs, chapters. Um, and then I was told we need 70,000 words by September, 2022. So sounds a little bit daunting. I remember when I was at about 30,000 thinking to myself, how will I ever get to 70,000 and eventually wound up with 80,000. So, um, once, uh, you know, sports, uh, started up again and, and we all began traveling, um, got a lot of it done in hotels, on airplanes, really whenever I could. And then the summer of, uh, 22, when I didn't have a lot of work, a couple of games here and there, uh, really finished it up during that period. And then once I submitted it in September last year, we went through the editing process with Triumph and uh, just so proud and excited when the first boxes arrived at my house in late August. It came out to the public in October last month and surreal to see Wayne Gretzky and Walt Clyde Frazier on the cover. They took part in the forwards and uh, so many other really nice uh, blurbs and paragraphs from other colleagues and friends, uh, people that I've become close with through the years. Well, it's an extremely enjoyable read, Kenny. And I'm not just saying that because I have you on. I took the opportunity to delve into it. And as a broadcaster, obviously, I'm passionate about the topic, but also it was great to hear your own experiences. It's a Mike for All Seasons, my three decades announcing the NFL, NHL, NBA, MLB, and Olympics. Can't recommend it enough. You can check it out online and wherever books are sold. Now, Kenny, before I let you go, out of my own curiosity, I've seen in passing that your father, Marv Albert, actually went to NYU after Syracuse. I need a confirmation, and I want to know, can NYU claim him as opposed to Syracuse? So you got to set the record straight for me here. He did finish up at NYU, graduated there from NYU. Go. He was at Syracuse for uh, three full years, uh, possibly into a fourth year. I'd have to check, uh, you know, the exact math, but um, Marty Glickman, the great Marty Glickman, who I referenced earlier, longtime voice of the Giants. When when my father was at Lincoln High School, um, he met Marty, who was doing a high school football game of the week at that time, and he started keeping stats for Marty, and he would intern for Marty Glickman. Uh, he was also a Knicks ball boy, and I think that's how he first met Marty, um, who was doing the Knicks at the time. So. He had a couple of jobs during his high school years. He was a Knicks ball boy. He was an intern for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he wrote for the Lincoln Log, the high school newspaper. <laughs> oh, at yeah. Lincoln high school. I've heard all these stories and I mentioned some of them in the book. So he met Marty, I think, at the Knicks game initially. Uh, started keeping stats for him at the high school football game of the week. And then Marty asked him if he would move to New York. Marty was a Syracuse grad as well. Marty needed an intern slash assistant slash fill-in broadcaster. So because of the opportunity with Marty, he moved to New York and finished up at NYU um, after the three years at Syracuse and wound up filling in for Marty on a Knicks-Celtics game. That was his first uh, real broadcast um, in either 1962 or 63. I know I write about it in the book as well, but um, it was the, the, the work with Marty Glickman that led him to uh, the transfer from Syracuse to NYU. So there is an NYU degree with Marv Albert's name on it, is what you're saying? Finished up at NYU, yes. There we go. A little history here on the Giants Huddle podcast. So the Washington Square News, the Lincoln Log, we covered it all here 
on the huddle brought to you by Citizens, the official bank of the New York Giants. Kenny, can't thank you enough. It's always great to catch up with you. Always great to reminisce. Uh, best of luck calling Giants Patriots. And who knows, maybe you've been witness to both pick sixes this season for the Giants with Jason Pinnock and then what Isaiah Simmons did. So maybe we're up for a third one this week. Jason Pinnock tying the franchise record, 102 yards yep. in Miami. Um, but Lance, really appreciate you having me on. I remember uh, coming on your show, the Chief Seats at WNYU. That's right. Many years yeah. ago. So we've come full circle. Uh, the book has its own Instagram account run by my daughter. Uh, who works as a video editor producer at the National Hockey League. So in her spare time, she runs the Instagram account. It's a mic for all seasons. It follows the travels of the book to various arenas and stadiums and cities uh, that I go to. And the book can be found in bookstores, online, barnesandnoble.com, Amazon, Target. Uh, appreciate you reading it and your support. And it, one final thing, it's not only for sports fans, as I think you would agree, uh, you don't have to be a sports fan to read the book. There's a lot about family, hard work, dedication as well, and a couple of references, as you said, to the Washington Square News and the Lincoln Log. 100%. And also, it's a great lesson in terms of how to grind things out, work hard, and in the end, it could pay off immensely, as you certainly have shown that in terms of your career coming to fruition. Kenny, always a pleasure, and look forward to speaking to you down the road. Thanks again. Thanks, Lance, and congratulations on your career to a fellow uh, NYU student and WNYU uh, sports guy, have enjoyed listening and watching and hope to see you out there on Sunday. Absolutely. My pleasure. As this is the latest edition of the Giants Auto Podcast, you can check it out on Giants.com, the mobile app, and your favorite podcast platforms.